Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. I'm a thousand percent believer that the future of work is hybrid because I think a hundred percent in the office is too much office. And I think a hundred percent remote is too little human interaction. And I think it's especially important for the younger generation, because I think it's going to be hard for them to come into a workforce where a lot of the expectation is remote. Our more senior folks, they're already tenured. They know what they're doing. They're used to the process. They know everybody in the company from the time before, but the newer folks come out of college the mentorship over Teams and Zoom is a lot harder than in the office, over your shoulder, let me see your code, let's walk it through together. Happy New Year, guys, and welcome back to the Govern Huddle podcast. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And as we kick off 2024, I hope you guys are feeling refreshed and motivated for the year ahead. I took a little bit of time off around the holidays, which was great to recharge or or at least recharge as much as three kids will allow you to. And gotta be honest, I'm not fully great at disengaging completely and still spent some time getting work done, but I'm really looking forward to 2024. I've never really been someone who's apprehensive for the new year to come. I've always viewed it as an opportunity to build on the work put in during the previous year. So that's kept me excited for this uh, upcoming year. And speaking of building off last year, that's exactly what my guest today is working on because in 2023, it was a big year for him. He took over as CEO of a company that he co-founded, RedScale. Travis Howerton co-founded the company back in 2021. And after co-founding another company, C2 Labs, prior to this, he spent a number of years in government at Oak Ridge National Laboratories and the National Nuclear Security Administration, where he had a number of roles, including CTO and director. Personally, I'm excited to jump into his brain a little bit and explore some of the challenges he faces and what he does to stay sharp as a CEO. And we're also going to discuss his thoughts on the future of work 
and what trends he's seeing in government that will impact 2024. Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. And I should say, Happy New Year. Um, as we're getting kind of getting into January, did you have any New Year's resolutions that uh, you're hoping to, I guess, ultimately break in, in 2024? Yeah, I think for for me, they're on the, the personal side. I've spent so many years just trying to get the startup going that uh haven't uh, taken as good care of my health as I could have. So all my all my New Year's resolutions are more around life hacking and just trying to get back in shape and take better care of myself. So that's uh my main resolution going in next year. Eat better, uh lose some weight and, and get back in shape. Those are all those are all really good ones. I've been listening to a few podcasts. One you you mentioned life hacks, um, yeah. or even health hacks. Are there any that you found that that are actually working right now that you think people would like? I've heard some people they swear by ice baths almost every day. Um, some of them do some outrageous things. Uh, are there things that you're looking to integrate into your your daily routine? Yeah, I've, I've been reading a book uh, called Outlive. And so it has a whole bunch of uh, good advice on what to eat, how active you should be, different things. So just different strength training things, getting back in the gym, avoiding certain kinds of food, alcohol, other things, and um, basically just trying to do more walking. So less sitting in my chair all day and more uh, being active. So it's uh, it's the basics for sure, but uh, it... Uh, there's some good advice in that book on uh, what matters and why and and how to extend not only your life, but the uh, uh, the quality of your life more than the length, right? So it's making sure that your last years are still good years by 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 keeping uh, keeping yourself up. That's awesome. And I can't imagine that it's easy to fit some of those things in being the the a founder and a and a CEO of a company. What's that been? What's that been like? Obviously, you, you founded this back in in twenty twenty one, but um, take us into the life a little bit of what a what a founder CEO looks like on a day to day basis. Sure. So it's uh, it's intense. I would say being an entrepreneur is not for the faint hearted. The uh, I tell everybody like the hardest part of being an entrepreneur was getting comfortable with being stupid. Uh, <laughs> in that I've worked for some big organizations like Oak Ridge National Lab, the National Nuclear Security Administration, where I was never stupid because I always had an expert. If I didn't know this about procurement, I'd go grab the procurement expert. If there was a legal question, I talked to them. If it was a legislative affairs question, we had those, didn't matter what it was, they had experts for everything. Um, in a startup, like you're kind of an army of one, every expert you talk to costs you money. So every time you see a attorney, you throw up a bit in the back of your mouth because you know it's going to cost you $300 an hour plus <laughs> to have this <laughs> conversation, right? So it's uh, it's, it's different there. Um, it's really rewarding, though, in the sense that you get to take something that's in your head, um, apply it in the real world, solve problems for people. And the part that I underappreciated how much I was going to love is it's the first job I've ever had where we got to build the team from scratch. Um, every job I've been hired into, there's an existing incumbent workforce, like you can bring in some new people, you might let go some other people, like you shift around the edges, but the workforce is kind of the workforce when you, uh, in these big organizations, right? Um, and so being able to hire for culture, for technical acumen, every single person in the organization and build it from scratch has been an enormous amount of fun. 
and it's super rewarding. Um, so like that's been probably my my favorite part of this is is seeing the software come to life, but more importantly, the team I get to do it with. Um, I've really greatly enjoyed that part. Well, I think you'd also agree. I mean, when you own your own business and you're doing that, culture is so important because you want to have the right people that are going to believe in what you're doing because ultimately this is something that you believe in or you wouldn't have have founded it. You wouldn't be an entrepreneur in the first place. But I, I can imagine people listening thinking, wow, that's it's cool that he likes it, but it's just daunting to think about building a team from scratch. Are there any things that you uh, that you learned throughout that process that you think would be valuable to the people listening that are looking to maybe not build a team at the scale that you are from the ground up. It's still from departmental level, et cetera, looking to build a team and um, not hit some of the landmines that maybe others have. Yeah. A lot of it's just grounded in good scientific method and uh, lean startup principles and that you're doing something nobody's ever done before. So inherently, at least on the product world, services is a little different, but on the product world, we're building something that didn't exist. And so we have to figure out what the market is, what people are willing to pay, what's going to resonate or not, how the technical bits are going to work. All of that is largely unknown. And so I think the biggest mistake people make is getting too far down. I've got this idea and here's how we're going to do it. And spending a ton of time and energy on something that never had a chance to work at all. Um, and so we started very early with a lot of hypothesis testing of here's what we think we think and here's why we think it. What's the minimum amount of work we can do to go take that out, measure, get some feedback, tweak it, do it again, do it again, do it again. And so it creates this flywheel of continuous improvement uh, based off real world feedback. And so if you look at the product today versus the idea we initially have, it's morphed a lot, but it's morphed based off what we've learned, market demand, competitive pressure, all those things that um, I was used to being in mature markets where things are well understood. There's lots of pro uh, process in place it, here, like none of that stuff was figured out. And so um, the biggest mistake I think people make is thinking they know the answer. Um, it's very seldom will you be right. Like you may be directionally correct, that you know that this is a problem, but the exact solution to it, it's going to be amorphous. Like it, it'll move um, with time, with customers, with different segments of the market. And so um, that would be my biggest advice is, is, if, is have strong opinions on what you're doing, but be flexible based off facts changing, right? And then being able to adapt rapidly. Yeah, I would imagine that having your your ego in check is is really important, right? Because I mean, yeah, you you are the boss, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to let go of what you think was the right path before and you might have been certain about it and now realizing, okay, it's sort of bifurcating and we need to go in this direction, but I really wanted to go here and I thought this was right. It was that something that you were challenged with? I know I'm I'm challenged with that on a regular basis. I'm a big believer, like I like more the Japanese philosophy of leadership. It's just lead as if you have no power, right? So like anytime, in my opinion, you exercise positional authority, it's because all your other skills have failed you or this person you're dealing with has failed you in some way. And now it's a difficult thing you're dealing with. But in general, I like the philosophy of lead as if you have no power, where you're like a big part of the job is removing barriers, empowering people. Um, asking hard questions that force us to think and, and push us forward. 
Um, but uh, uh, checking the ego at the door for sure. It's uh, I, I will say like I'm at the point in my career where it's just like I don't really feel like I've got a lot to prove anymore in management mm -hmm. and ladder climbing and that sort of thing. And like the part I've taken great enjoyment in is like how far can the team go and how far can we push customers to to deliver value and other things. I get a lot more joy out of that at this phase of life um, than I did the uh, ladder climbing, which I think is a necessary part of being sort of earlier in your career and working hard and moving up the management chain. But uh, uh, I much prefer the leadership side where it's all about what the team can do and uh, what you can do for customers. That's that's really interesting. I, I I wish I could remember the the name of the podcast I was listening to. I think it was I think it was Adam Grant, who's a a psychologist, behavioral psychologist, and he talked about how the uh, until you're forty, you, the way your brain operates is it's very agile, right? And you start to you can think creatively and you can do things in in manners that start to slow down after forty, but then you hit a different type and it's like that wisdom phase and it sounds like not to not to age you but uh mm -hmm. you're kind of in that wisdom phase where you're appreciating all the different things that you've learned across your career and now it's just i would imagine it's just really cool to see a lot of this come to fruition not just the the business side of it but like you said the actual delivery and the results and the outcomes that you're driving for customers that's got to be that's got to be pretty rewarding Oh yeah, for sure. It, it's uh, it, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm I'm definitely on the uh, over forty camp for sure. So if, like, if you're dating me, you were correct. Um, and I don't think it's that you uh, become less agile for me when you're in your forties. I think if if you do things well, what you get is a lot of process discipline, right? So earlier in my career, because you lack wisdom and experience, you have a lot of stuff that you do just off gut and raw effort. Um, with the benefit of experience, you kind of, you kind of know to slow down. So like, uh, and I hate to, to, to quote him because I'm a Tennessee boy, but I like Nick Saban's quote on it. Like you can deal with the pain of a, dis of a disciplined life, which is hard, or you can deal with the pain of a disappointing life. Right. Because life without discipline will be disappointing. Right. And so, yeah. like, it's just learning the discipline of slowing down, asking the right questions, um, always challenging assumptions and what do you truly know versus what you think you know, and uh, uh, making sure you get to the right decisions. It's just very much a discipline thing for me. Same with the continuous improvement um, side. It's just, ruthless process discipline in, in what you're trying to accomplish um, is sort of the the key. It's always been the key for me of doing anything at scale. I like that. Yeah. I've, I've heard, I've heard it said differently, but same idea. You can either pay for it now or pay for it later, but yep. you're, you're going to pay for it ultimately. So when do you want to, when do you want to do it? And you, you talked about the, you talked about the love of building a team. Um, you, you were very humble in that you didn't say that you built that team in the middle of a pandemic. So you you founded this company in 2021 and we are sort of coming out of it, but still not out of it yet. And yeah. I would I would argue maybe it was even more difficult because there was all that ambiguity about it. You didn't have the the clear discernment of no, you're remote or no, you're in the office. There it was this like, where what are we gonna do? Um, tell me a little bit about what that was like. Cause when you're an entrepreneur, you're not expecting 
a a pandemic to hit and say, let me just throw this variable in here. What was that like as you founded it? Yeah, I, I would say like the the thing about being an entrepreneur is it's always something. Something's always on fire. Like you figure something out and then you grow to your next level of pain and something else breaks. So there's always a fire because um, you're not mature, stable, large enterprise. Like there's something always changing, breaking, scale dynamics that happen. People break at the next level of scale. Product can break. Customers break. Like there's a bunch of stuff that happens. Um, pandemic was just one of the bigger breaks. Like the hard part is we had just come out of stealth, essentially. So we had been building this as sort of a skunk works project. We'd been running a digital transformation company, Anil and I, and we wanted to go to market. And then COVID hits and you can't meet with anybody. You can't fly anywhere. It's like, how do you sell in this kind of environment? And so um, we were lucky. We're able to land a couple of key deals early. Um, it was very touch or go whether this was going to work just because of the the market change, right? Like we just couldn't get to anybody. Um, but just serendipity, we got a couple early wins that kind of tied us over. And then coming out of the pandemic, we were able to convert those early wins into our Series A investment and been able to scale and grow from there. But it was it was very difficult. The upside though, is we built our company entirely cloud native from the beginning. So that helped. Like, so when everything went remote and we had to do everything virtually, that's just how we operate. Anyway. Well, I would imagine right. it also proved your value immediately to the customers who are also experiencing this very same thing. Yep. And so I think it's a lot harder if you're a big institution and you've got 6,000 people who come to work every day in their offices and now they're all remote and they don't have laptops and you don't have virtual desktops and you don't have your uh, meeting collaboration stuff set up. But we started from the beginning that everybody has their own machines. They've got, everybody can work from home. We built everything cloud native to scale from the start. Um, so I think that part actually made the pandemic easier for us. So we were, we were able to uh, sort of pivot through that part technically without much challenge at all. It was just another day technically, whereas others I know had a really hard time um, with that shift. Um, the hard part for us was really the sales go to market. It's really hard to sell remotely um, and build relationships with people without being in person. Were there, were there things that you found that maybe you weren't as comfortable with in the beginning that now you've you've realized are our strengths? Like the I, I remember when um, I I did a lot of speaking at the job I was at before uh, or during the pandemic and even before the pandemic, traveling around and doing those types of things and meeting with customers. And after we shifted back and I was doing a lot of virtual presentations, I realized how much of a, a physical speaker I was, how much yeah. I like walk around and, and move my hands and, and that type of thing. And just realized how difficult it was to sit in a chair and just talk at people without any of that physicality and engagement. Um, so I had to, I had to start building some muscle in, in other areas. Were there things that you had to do? during that period to kind of do the same on the sales and go to market side? Uh, yeah, for me, like I'm an introverted computer nerd for sure. Like, so um, being in more of the sales support, it's a lot of uh, talking and uh, speaking and convincing and all those things. And so 
where I have some skills there, it is exhausting for me. <laughs> you know, by the end of the day, it's a lot of talking. Um, so like that was probably the biggest toll on me personally is just it's hard to be engaged in conversations on Teams and Zoom all day, every day. Um, at least in the room, you get a lot more like, at least for me, I get energy from the energy of others in a room, right? So like when you're on a whiteboard and you're engineering mm -hmm. or you're with a customer and you can feel their excitement about about what you're doing, I get a lot of energy out of that. Whereas the virtual stuff is effective, but it's also kind of soul crushing for me to be on like a wall of 10 straight Zoom teams meetings. It's just a lot of talking without a lot of direct human interaction, which just makes it harder. So like there was an adjustment period on that for sure. But I think everybody went through that uh, to some degree. Um, my extroverted friends, I think it was even worse for them because like they really enjoy that human connection. Um, and so I think that was a hard thing for everybody. You know, it's funny. I've always considered myself to be an extrovert because I like being around people and I like having conversations. But when everything pivoted, I, I also realized I was always the kind of person that when I showed up to a meeting, I just wanted the meeting to start. I wanted to talk about what the business was and then I wanted to leave and move on to the next thing. Um, yep. So it actually was beneficial to me in that way. I was I was surprised with how easy it was for me to kind of remove that human interaction. And now it's been nice because it's 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 a, it's more of a hybrid situation where I can go out and, and, and see people and, and do meetings in person and also have the remote side of things. And it's kind yeah. of the, the best of both worlds right now. It's kind of feeding my soul in that way. Yeah. And I'm a, a thousand percent believer that the future of work is hybrid because I think a hundred percent in the office is too much office. And I think a hundred percent remote is too little human interaction. And so um, in general, all of our R&D team that we built here in Knoxville, it's it's all they're all geolocated for the most part. So they can work from home most of the time and they do. But sometimes you just need to get on a whiteboard or have everybody in for a lunch or do something where you build human connections. And I think it's especially important for the younger generation, because I think it's going to be hard for them to come into a workforce where a lot of the expectation is remote. Our more senior folks, they're already tenured. They know what they're doing. They're used to the process. They know everybody in the company from the time before. Um, but the newer folks coming out of college, the mentorship over Teams and Zoom is a lot harder than in the office, over your shoulder. Let me see your code. Let's walk it through together. Like uh, So I think uh, those are some challenges in development of uh, younger generation that I think everybody's struggling with in this remote work concept. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. So let's let's pivot a little bit. Um, we've we've talked a lot about your background and kind of founding the company and and your thoughts on some things. But tell us a little bit about what Redscale does. Sure. So we are uh, one of the leading continuous controls monitoring companies, CCM. Um, it's what Gartner's writing about is kind of what's next after GRC, which is the traditional governance, risk, and compliance world. And so in the government, you would hear this referred to as like an ATO, an authority to operate, or your risk management framework, RMF, FISMA, documentation. And so I, I found, so I'm a, by way of background, I'm a former nuclear weapons guy. So I started on the federal side. Um, and left as the first agency's chief technology officer um, uh, across the U.S. nuclear weapons program. And the compliance requirements, especially around cybersecurity, were just intense. Mountains of paperwork nobody wanted to read, nobody wanted to write. 
And we were kind of looking at this and going, and this is before like the rise of ephemeral serverless AI-based systems, which is where everything's going um, in the future. Whether you're on-prem or you're using a hyperscaler, everything's going cloud in these AI-type tools and serverless technologies. It's, it's just the directional trend. And so we were looking at it and going, there's no, all these government agencies are struggling to digitally transform because they can't get out of their own way from the bureaucratic compliance paperwork. And nobody's trying to be bureaucratic. And if you look at this, all the controls NIST wants you to do, they're all good ideas. They're security best practices. They're things you should be looking at considering. For us, the, the silly part of it is this idea you're going to document dynamic real-time systems in static Word documents and Excel spreadsheets. It's breaking now, but as a function of time, it will become impossible to do. It will make no sense at all. At the same time, we looked at everything's API-driven in our modern technology world. And so our view was, what if you could have self-updating paperwork where the cloud and the systems attest to their own state, compliance is code, the paperwork's always up to date. You can use AI to basically do a lot of what you're doing with manual process. And then we can generate audit-ready documentation on demand in Word and Excel. What would that do for an agency's mission? Like it would allow them to greatly accelerate. We talk to companies or uh, agencies that have 18 to 24 month backlogs on getting their ATO documents. So it's, to me, it's unacceptable as a taxpayer that I need this capability to support our government agency's mission. And I got to wait two years before I even get my turn in the hopper for paperwork. Like it's just too long. And so private sector largely doesn't have to deal with this. And so what we're looking at is for these highly regulated industries, government, healthcare, finance, energy sector. Um, can we just compress that for them? Can we help them operate at the speed of commercial? without any compromise of security, it actually improves security because you got a real-time view into where everything's actually at using the latest automation AI techniques. And so that was really the genesis behind RegScale is how do we generate self-updating paperwork that's always correct, that we use AI to remove the manual task and that you can give your auditor paperwork on demand at any time so sort of always audit ready or what you hear talked about like continuous ATO in the cyberspace. So that was the idea behind it. That's how we, we brought it to market. And that thesis is what we've been growing from. Is this, is this the thesis that you guys built this company on? Was that from experience being in government or actually kind of seeing it from the outside in? Both. Um, so I started on the government side and, and Anil did as well. We both had experience where we had to write these plans or we had to read these huge plans. And the problem was they're so painful. There's three to 600 pages at times, right? That someone had to manually create. It's a point in time. They say you're good. And then your next audit's in three years. So it is so painful, sort of problem number one. Number two, does anybody really think it's okay to not look at your controls, but once every three years in a cyber landscape that changes all the time? That makes no sense. Right. And can we really afford it? So if you look at sort of the workforce needs, there's way more need for cybersecurity jobs and there's people to actually do it. And that's not changing anytime soon. So 
our thesis was the only way out of this problem is to automate it and use it AI. And it's not to put people out of jobs. It's there's nobody to do those jobs. And frankly, nobody wants to do those jobs. It's super tedious and manual. What you want them to do is be risk professionals where they look at the outcome of it and say, how are we going to better protect our company? What decisions are we going to make? Where are we going to invest? You want them to use their human brains to solve risk problems, not to do tedious compliance paperwork. And so we just wanted to automate that entire industry. Like that was the thesis is nobody wants to do this. Nobody likes doing it. It's hurting our government. It's hurting these highly regulated companies. Can we just automate this entire problem away with the advances we're seeing in technology? And we think we can, right? And so that's been our mission and goal. What has been the uh, what has been the reception to? I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's it's disruption, right? You guys are disrupting exactly how they've been doing it and been comfortable doing it in the past, albeit in a better way, and I think objectively a better way. I think anybody would say that. It's just whether yeah. or not they, they're able to pull it in. But it, what's been the reception to, especially the government side of, of people that have that have uh, been engaged? Honestly, mixed. And so you get a, a couple of things, I would say, there. One, it's like we've got a large DOD customer. They're touting 200,000% process improvements from what it takes them to do it today to what they can do this process with in reg scale. Like, mind-boggling. Part of that, our technology is amazing. Um, yeah. Part of it is their business process was terrible, uh -huh. right? And so like fixing all of that can save so much time and money, like legit time and money. So you have visionaries who, who definitely get it. You have people who are stuck in their ways that you will pry Excel from their cold, dead hands. Well, I have right? to imagine they're worried about that change, right? Are they going to get in trouble by making this change when they know for a <laughs> fact the certainty they've been doing it this way and it'll it'll be okay? But I think it's the same transition you saw in DevOps, uh -huh. right? It's almost the exact same thing. I know how to do this thing in Excel. I've been doing this same thing in Excel for 25 years. I have no idea how all this automation stuff works or will they still need my job? And then a lot of this work is done by contractors who aren't super incentivized to give their work up and give the money back to the government, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a variety of factors that kind of... Uh, Hit, but I, I would say on the mission side of government, there is most definitely an appetite to improve this process because it hurts and it, it hinders their ability to accomplish their mission. And at the same time, they can't afford to keep doing things the way they've always done them um, and expect a different result. And so that's an area I'd say it, it's mixed depending on the level and the customer you're talking to, but there is a lot of momentum behind Compliance as code. Uh, Dr. Iorga at NIST has been a thought leader in this space. If you look at what FedRAMP's doing with uh, automation and other things, like there's a lot of recognition that the way we've always done it isn't going to work in the future and that you've got to push in this direction. And we're doing our part to be part of that story and to try to be a market leader in the art of the possible and compliance and risk automation. Well, and you said you said the the cost of, and I think some some people will look at the cost of procurement, and I think other people would look at the cost of not doing it, and what the efficiencies you gain are, and and what the basically the I mean the security posture that you can gain from it as well. Like you said, you can't yeah. afford to not be up to date on a lot of these things. I mean, look at some of the hacks that we've seen over the years, like Solar Winds, et cetera. That I mean, you, you want to be able to be up to speed at all times to make sure that 
not just for a peace of mind, but for actual security, making sure you're you're hardened in that way. And you've talked about where the industry is going. Um, as we're wrapping up, I'm curious, what other trends are you seeing around compliance in security in government right now? Yeah, I think you're seeing a move to continuous ATO. So getting out of this point in time certification that happens once every three years and this idea that you should always be in a secure state and continuously authorizing the system. And so that shift um, is a big part of what we do. And so I, and I think the other shift you're seeing is a, a couple of things, probably tool fatigue. Almost every CISO we talk to has way too many tools, not enough staff to manage it. A lot of things that sit on the shelf um, and never get fully utilized. Um, so I think there's a shift to trying to have the right set of tools that do a lot of things well and just work with the other tools to try to reduce burdens on CISOs and compliance shops. I think there's a lot of pressure on budgets, just given the state of uh, uh, our, our government and national debt. So all the pressures on budgets, this is an area where you can pull costs out of the system. And then the other one is, it, it's just not acceptable to run these old technologies. They cost too much, they have too much cyber risk. And frankly, it's an HR recruiting risk because it's hard to get the best and brightest out of school and put them on 20 year old technology yeah. Right. Um, and get them excited about coming to work. Like, so there's been a shift in the user experience people expect at work. And so helping government agencies modernize by pulling out some of the long pole in the tent process work on the cyber side, we think it, it's very strategic for most government agencies. And so whether they go with us or one of our competitors, everybody should be considering how do I do compliance as code? How do I do self-updating paperwork? Well, where can AI pull cost out of my process for doing this work? Compliance is super right and risk for automation and AI. I think you touched on a lot of things there, but one of the things that I think is interesting and I, I've touched on a lot is how interrelated all these digital transformations are, so much so that it touches the the HR and the recruiting side of things, right? You're able to retain top talent, recruit top talent when you have these tools that are going to make their lives a little bit easier and make them more efficient. I mean, you said before, turn them into risk risk analysis, risk, risk experts, let them use their brain and not just sit there and do data entry, which is not what the next generation of, of individuals want to do, let alone me. It's not what I want to do. So I think it's important to be able to do that. Yeah, people will talk about millennials and they want purpose. Like, I don't buy into that. Every Every individual I've ever met wants to feel like they have a purpose at work. Mm -hmm. The Agreed. best part in my experience of government is the connection to your country and, and the people you serve. Like you have a mission where you are serving your country and government people get a bad rap, but everyone I've ever met is in it for altruistic reasons. They want to help. They want to serve. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Let's not put them in 600 page spreadsheets and 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 uh, all this manual data entry hell. Let's let them use their full potential to better serve the country. Right. Get a lower cost to the taxpayer, get happier uh, government employees, get more value end to end. But uh, I, I just see it as a win win everywhere. There's some areas you automate that are more controversial. I've never met anyone who said, you know, the way we do our cyber ATO paperwork is super efficient. Everybody loves it. 
We love writing these documents. Everybody loves reading them. They're always accurate. Never, not one time has anybody described their program that way. So it's one of those that nobody's happy with current state. I just don't think people realize the art of the possible and that there is a better way. And we're trying to help show folks through RecScale and, and what we're doing that uh, we can help you automate your way out of this problem. Travis, I've enjoyed this conversation. I've had a lot of fun, but we're going to have a little bit more fun here as okay. we jump into the uh, the final five. Um, first question I have for you, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Um, from Jeff Smith at ORNL. Um, he was the uh, deputy lab director. We were in a meeting and a project wasn't going well and uh, was about to brief him on it and he kind of stopped. He could kind of read that there was tension in the room. And he said, the best plans start with the truth. He said, you can accept it now or you can accept it later. He said, it will still be true. It's cheaper and easier to accept it now, right? And so like, I've kind of taken that one with me. Uh, Ray Dalio's book, Principles, has a lot of that on it. Like getting to the truth as quickly as possible and knowing that it's true is one of the keys to success, I think, in, in any part of business. People take for granted they know what's true, um, but often um, it, it's, it's not. Like it's just their perception of what's true. And so I think uh, I, I would put that one in the best advice I've ever got. What about the worst advice you've ever gotten? Hmm. I'm guessing someone out there said, maybe you shouldn't found that company or had some entrepreneurial tips for you that probably weren't the best at some point. Um, I had a, a boss who told me, look, you're in management. You can't be technical anymore. And he's like, you got to choose. Like you can either be in management or you can be technical. And I think that is an incredibly false choice. Mm -hmm. Like the best manager should have technical expertise in what they are managing and overseeing. Um, and so that was one that uh, uh, I think uh, a big part of what I've done well over my career, career is balancing developing leadership skills with technical skills and putting it together. Uh, but I think it's a false choice where people say management can't be technical. I think the all the trends in the world are pushing management to be more technical every day i think that's a that's an interesting one because i'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that probably either have been told that or are having that dilemma right now so that's uh that's a really great one um mm -hmm. question number three who's someone in history you would like to have a conversation with i think i'd go winston churchill like just uh leadership during a very dire time in the world um just always admired him as a statesman and as a leader. Um, I think that would be and I'm a bit of a World War II history buff and been uh, reading some books, watching some documentaries lately. That's the one that immediately kind of mind that that would be a, a cool conversation to have and, and learn from. That's a good one. It's interesting. Uh, question number four, what's something that's inspiring you right now? I'd say SpaceX. Um, yeah, if you just look at Elon Musk's sort of mission to make us a multi-planetary species, just the audacity of that and the fact that he's actually pulling some of that off. And uh, we're a digital transformation company, right? Like we disrupt things. And so it's uh, when you look at what he's doing, like people think like, hey, we're too big or we can't be disrupted. He disrupted NASA. Like that's his government... <laughs> like protected as you would have thought anything could have been and uh, has completely disrupted that. And so it's, uh, uh, 
I find that inspiring. Like the uh, the scale of the vision, Steve Jobs, I would have put in a similar camp of just making what people said would be impossible in, until they actually do it. And so I, I'd say that one's pretty awe-inspiring what he's been able to pull off at SpaceX. And last question, where do you go to self-educate? Um, sort of a combination of things. I do a lot, a lot of reading, um, both... Uh, online research, uh, Udemy courses for technical stuff. I'm a big Audible guy, so listen to Audible books on the way to work back, working out. Uh, but uh, just everywhere I can uh, find some extra time, I'm either got a, some sort of Audible book on where I'm trying to teach myself something, or if I got some downtime, I'm doing some research, figuring out what others are doing. Um, but uh, uh Reading's my big thing. So in some format or another, I'm going to be reading, or if I can't read because it's unsafe because I'm driving, somebody's going to read to me. Um, but uh, I'm a big believer in reading. Yeah, I'm a big Audible guy, so I'm, I've found a lot of love in that. I wasn't a huge reader before, but now I've just been plowing through books um, yep. because because uh, you could do it anywhere. So, so yeah. I'm loving it. Talk about an industry that was disrupted. <laughs> oh, yeah, completely. Um, hey, Travis, I appreciate the time today. This has been a really excellent conversation. And uh, as we, we kick off into 2024, uh, best of luck for your company, but also best of luck on accomplishing that New Year's resolution of kind of better health for the new year. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you having us. And uh, thank you very much. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.